Welcome to the Surveyor Hub podcast with me, Marion Ellis, a chartered surveyor, coach, business mentor, and founder of the Surveyor Hub community. Each week on this podcast, I speak to surveyors and people in the industry about their careers, business journeys, and day-to-day work. Listen to their real-life stories, step into their shoes, and leave feeling connected to the conversation. So today I'm really pleased to welcome to the podcast Ian Gill from RICS, who is Director of Education and Qualification Standards, which sounds like a really long job title, Ian. It is. I think it's probably one of the longest in the organisation. Essentially, Marion, it means that I'm responsible for entry and assessment into the profession. Cool. Um, we've got quite a few, well, I mean, in the Survey Hub, we get quite a few questions about APC, getting started, how does it all work? And it'd be really good today to, if we can, demystify some of that. But first, first let me ask you about your career. I mean, how long have you been at RICS? What kind of, you know, what does your day-to-day role look like? Give us a bit of background. I've been at RICS for seven years now. Since I've been working, all of my roles have been working for professional bodies, either on uh, this side, working on standard side, working on universities or assessments, or working on commercial training and professional development and some of the quality assurance side. Uh, a day-to-day uh, responsibilities here at RSES, it's, it's working with our assessment and our assessment operations teams to make sure that the way in which we're, we're delivering our assessment is exactly the way it should be delivered all around the world. And that's the thing, this is a global, RSS is a global organisation and therefore people will be doing their assessments all over the world. Can I ask you for those, so we get a lot of um, uh, learners and students listening to the podcast who probably heard about the APC and assessment and ASOP. Could we sort of maybe sort of just start with, you know, how do you get qualified and join the RICS? Well, there's actually more than one way to get qualified. And I think this is part of the demystifying bit. I think one of the things that we do really well here at RICS is we provide routes for people with different backgrounds and experiences. So there's there's the associate assessment for those people that haven't gone through a traditional academic experience. They haven't necessarily got a degree. There's the chartered surveyor assessments, um, and there's actually quite a few of those. There's the APC, that's the most common. We also have an academic route, and we have routes for people with over 10 years experience who are working in senior management, senior leadership roles. And essentially what somebody needs to do is to identify the route that's most appropriate for them, where they're at in their career, and put that together with a pathway. And that's our technical route into the profession. And the combination of those two things then leads through to actually how we will be assessed. Um, and, And for the majority of people coming through, it's a one hour interview with a 10 minute presentation that focuses on their submission. Oh, you make that sound so easy. I remember my APC interview and uh, it, was it the worst day of my life? <laughs> no, it, but it was pretty stressful, uh, you know, but it was it was all fine, all fine in the end. But most surveyors I speak to have got an APC story. You know, it's the, that big momentous thing of when they did their interview and um, a lot of us went to some random hotel in Heathrow not not so glamorous to to do their interview. Yes, we've all, we've all got an APC story. Uh, what what do you mean by academic route? So there's 
sort of the APC interview and then you said academic? Yeah, so the academic route is there for individuals that are teaching or leading undergraduate and postgraduate programmes in the natural and built environment. The lecturers on surveying degree programmes, for example. Okay, so within the residential sector, which is the the area that I know and love, um, and we, you know, the most uh, group of people that we have in the in the surveyor hub, most of those people have come through the ASOC route, the the majority. Is there a particular reason, do you think, residential seems to have adapted to ASOC, you know, sort of uh, ASOC group so well, or is ASOC, is it more common in, in other types of surveying or...? No, it's not actually. So um, there's about five and a half thousand associate members worldwide, and about five thousand of those are based in the UK. Okay. So that gives you a sense of the geographical spread of our associate qualified professionals. But of those, a high proportion, well over ninety percent of those, will be working in the residential sector. And I think there's probably two reasons why individuals working in in residential roles are attracted to the associate pathway. One is there are actually three associate pathways within the residential sector, um, which is more than any other any other discipline within the profession. I think one of the other reasons is it's historical. The associate grew out of uh, previous qualifications that we had called tech RICS, tech RICS, technical RICS. Yeah. And, and that was seen very much as a, a highly specialist qualification with, with a narrower focus. And I think that appealed to a lot of members working in working in the residential sector. Mm. And I and you tend to find, you know, those that work in residential just do just purely work in in residential. And when you get commercial surveyors that want to come over to residential, and particularly residential valuation, they do find it hard or they find it challenging to to train once they've got qualified and the uh, the different routes. And I guess in many ways it's a different beast because your clients are more likely the general public rather than than business to business and that's a real sort of factor um, uh, into it. Uh, what about if somebody wants to progress their career and go from ASOC to chartered status? Because I think some people don't realise that ASOC is not chartered, is it? No, it's not. And, and they're actually quite different. I think one of the best ways of describing the differences is that breadth and depth of technical competence. That the associate has the narrower range of competencies that are assessed to a particular depth of, of competence whereas charter surveyor it has much more choice within it so it covers a wider range of areas now we do have a lot of members that want to progress their career and and take the associate qualification and use that as a stepping stone as a springboard onto charter surveyor Um, and and that i think has been one of the problems that we've had over the years providing a really clear and easy to understand route for associates in order to become charter surveyors one of the things we've been working on over the last 18 months is testing a new way to do that. Um, the route that we currently have is quite complicated. It requires numbers of years from an accredited degree and four years experience, which is it puts people off. What we've been trying is a new training program, and we specifically focused that on residential surveyors. Um, the people that will come through that, some of them were assessed just before Christmas, and some of them are going to be assessed at the next assessment session in the spring. So hopefully, by the summer, we'll have some positive results and can start to plan for a new way for people to progress from associates to charters. I, I think that that's brilliant to explore that because so many people do want to continue their journey. And, you know, just like for me, when I got my fellowship, it's like the next 
stage of your professional career and you know you can argue whether you get more fees better fees from it all or what difference it really makes but having that sort of confidence uh, and pride in the job that you do and the profession you know certainly made a, a difference for me and I, I I do know many surveyors in the hub do ask about how do I move forward so they'll be um uh, waiting anxiously and excitedly I guess to hear what the what the outcome of um, of that is in terms of getting uh, getting qualified uh, just on on ASOC so a lot of the surveyors in the hub will come through the SAVA diploma and survey and, and valuation are there many courses like that is that what they call us a, a direct route a, a entry route yeah, so um, one of one of the ways that people can qualify with RICS is through something called a direct entry route or an approved qualification route. And, and this is uh, where we recognise another professional body or another regulators or a training provider's qualification. And we calibrate that against our own standards for what we're assessing and how we're assessing. And then we take that to our standards boards and they approve it or not in some cases. And if that's approved, then there's a whole list on the website of those qualifications and licenses to practice around the world where essentially if the standard is at least equivalent we're not going to ask a professional to do something else for us mm. and roughly about one in ten members each year globally qualify through this through this process so it, so there's a list on the website of all the all the relevant memberships or, or courses that people can do which would then get them get them entry in Absolutely right. And, and that list is separated out by those that are approved for direct entry to ASOC and those that are approved for direct entry to Charter Sphere. And then you'll see them listed by geography as well. Okay. The one of the things with the ASOC Quicks qualification uh, that, that I know of in, in Sava, uh, the Sava route, is that although they have sort of some mentoring, you know, they have accompanied inspections in the, in the, in the, uh, the work that they do, but they don't have the APC type interview. Why is that? Is that because just because they've they've qualified through and you know the accredited route, so they don't need that? Is that the so why is it that certain qualifications can be recognized for entry to RSS if they don't yeah. have the interview? Yeah, and and it, and is an interview, you know, an additional interview not needed? Um well that's where we recognize them at, at in different ways. So for some of them, when, we, when we're calibrating a qualification for direct entry to charter surveyor, we'll always look for something that looks similar to the submission requirements to the interview process. That, that's the starting point, because that, that's a little bit easier, isn't it? It's understandable. It's, it's familiar to us. But we also recognise that there are many different ways to assess skills and competence. Mm. So, so we, we're looking for outcomes from the process. I think it's rare that we'd approve direct entry route for charter surveyor without some form of oral assessment. I think there are a couple, but those are the ones that tend to have uh, a high number of exams within them and normally actually reserve the right to interview as well. One of the things that I've come across uh, and got to know, I mean, I'd always sort of known it, but it's become really apparent to me over the last year, and particularly as I've been doing this podcast, is the number of surveyors who have neurodiverse challenges. So in particular, dyslexia, ADHD or all the other ones out there that makes it an addition that's an additional challenge for many surveyors to actually go through that 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 process does RICS have a I don't know policy on that or or guidance 
Absolutely. And, and we take our responsibilities in that area very seriously. So one of the things that somebody can do when they make their submission for final assessment, and let's just talk about the Charters of Air Assessment. Mm-hmm. One of the things that somebody can do when they make their submission is, is to declare to us any special considerations that they'd like us to take account of. And then we will look at what our responsibilities are and we'll agree with the candidate any additional measures that we can put in place to help them with their assessment, the most common of which is additional time. Right. But it really does depend on every individual circumstance. Because it's a really, you know, there's a lot of shame and embarrassment associated with it. And you see it in job applications where people don't note that they're dyslexic or or have these challenges for fear of not getting a job. But the more open people are, particularly with assessments, I mean, on the one hand, yes, it's great to have more time on an APC interview. On the other hand, that's prolonging it, which, which might not help. But I guess the, the point is to flag it and raise it and to share, you know, that there are these, these challenges and then the panel can be much more receptive to actually, because the interview isn't, we're going to fail you. It's a, how can we help you pass? <laughs> you know, show us what you've got and we'll ask you the questions to nurture out of you to show how, how much you know. Absolutely. It's about getting, it's about giving the opportunities to the candidate to get the best out of them to really show the panel what they can do during that hour. Now, to help us do that, if if a candidate does have something that they'd like to, to consider, then they can declare that to us as part of that process and we'll discuss with the candidate what the right measures are and what's appropriate for us to put in place. We'd never disclose something to the panel without the candidate's permission um, because not all candidates want those, want their personal circumstances to be declared to the panel. Um, some do, though. Some feel that it will help the, uh, the panel better understand the situation that they're in and the experiences that they've had. But it really is down to every individual and every individual circumstance. So we're recording this in March 2021. The world has changed and APC assessments have now gone online, haven't they? Tell me a bit about that experience, what you've learned from candidates and you know APC panels and chairs and assessors. Well, we're nearly a year into it now, aren't we, from working from home and when lockdown happened. And one of the first things that we had to do being in March 2020 was think about how we were going to deliver the spring assessments in, in March 2020. And I was really pleased, actually, at the, the efforts of the team and how they moved so quickly in order to get those assessments moving online. Before March 2020, running assessments online was reasonably common outside of the UK. There'd be different reasons for that. Geography being the main one, Mm. it's harder to bring people to an airport hotel in in some countries that are a little bit larger than the UK. But it really was just an incredible effort by the team, by assessors and and candidates in order to... And the way in which they approached that new way of doing it was really, really good. And... I'd just like to pause, actually, and just say thank you to all of the assessors and counsellors and everyone that volunteers, because without people volunteering to support the process, we couldn't be able to deliver those assessments. Mm. And and that's a really incredible thing to do. What have we learned from a year in? Well, we've just done our 5,000th online assessment interview. That happened a few weeks ago. Um, One of the things I would say is that the, the vast majority of feedback that we've had from candidates and assessors has been positive. I think particularly for candidates, not having that that anxiety, that stress necessarily in the morning of travelling to an assessment centre, worrying what the traffic was going to be like on, on the ring roads around Heathrow Airport, for example, having to arrive early and sit in that room in front in the, in the waiting room with all of the other candidates and 
walking down the room. I, I think there's a more relaxed approach to it when you can do it in an environment that you're comfortable mm. with. And we've all been working from home for significant periods of the last year and some candidates have been able to use their offices, some have been able to use other environments, but actually for some joining remotely from home has been a positive, but it's also been a challenge for some. But overall, feedback from the candidates has been very positive. Yeah, I I guess it's, you know, there are, there are definite advantages than going to Heathrow, a hotel in Heathrow. I mean, I did my APC in interview in 2003 or four, crikey, can't remember now, a long time ago. And I can remember it to this day getting to the hotel, walking to the reception. I can remember the suit that I was wearing. We went into this small room, waiting area. Uh, and I, re- I remember a couple of things. I remember actually being uh, more mature than some of the other people that, that went through. Not that I was not that I'm very old, obviously, but, uh, but being a bit more mature. And everybody looked like they were awake. And it was they were terrifying. And I had this black suit on, uh, but it was really warm. It was um, in March and I remember taking my jacket off because I was hot and I had this fashionable at the time knitted jumper that was like a lime green, green colour and I took this jacket off and I swear I saw some people flinch like they needed sunglasses on. <laughs> Just like, what's she doing? And then, you know, you walk down your corridor, the corridor to the right room, you knock on the door, you go in and... I remember on my panel, I had, um, there seemed to be a good cop, bad cop routine going on. I mean, obviously this is back in the day. I said something about a rule of thumb with, you know, bracing on a roof or thickness of the purlins or or something like that. And the bad cop was, oh, I haven't heard anyone say that for years, which obviously threw the others. And, you know, I'd done my presentation. I sort of had these questions and, you know, as I went, got into it, I just thought, you know, I'm going to enjoy this. For me to pass, the pressure meant that if I didn't pass, I would lose my home because I was in a, a graduate job. We'd had a, had a mortgage. You know, if I didn't pass within the next sort of two months, we started to get into financial difficulty and we had to sell our flat. And so when I then became on a panel myself, I was always mindful of when people come into the room, it's not just about getting through this one hour. The pressure that people are put under or put themselves under for whatever reason and life circumstances, you know, it's just they want to do well, they need to pass. And so, you know, the approach of really trying to nurture out what you know through the questioning. And, you know, when you you then have to put someone for a referral, it's usually with really good, good reason. So, you know, my own experience of it really then you know, I mean, I haven't done the the panel for a, a couple of years now, but you know, I I always took that that with me. Now, as it happened, I actually got got my past results on April Fool's Day. Would you believe? So, <laughs> I'm not sure if that was an error, but I, you know, I'll, I'll take that. But it's a very different world now, isn't it? And so, you know, yes, the the natural thing is to do it online, but delivering on video, you know, I mean, we're recording this, you know, via Zoom. You know, it's quite informal chat, but when it's something that's really important and you've got people dialed in, it's a different thing to learn. You know, so the presence and confidence that you have in an interview, you know, is slightly different to what you need in a in a video scenario. And for for those people who are in the hub and listening, I've done a little video on video confidence, which may help some people how to not necessarily set up your tech because I'm no tech whiz, 
but just things that you can do and uh, and your setup because it it does make a difference and the, and you've got to really help the other people understand and know and things like body language changes you know so you've got to be exactly. a, I'm doing my hands in the air now you know you've got to be more expressionate is that if that's a word you know it, it, it is different and something's lost through this medium isn't it than, than if we were yeah sat in the room together or if the candidates were sat in the same room as the panel there is something that's lost but I think for me one of the reasons why it's really important that we move to online interviews was to give candidates the interview and to still be able to mm. deliver them because we, we don't know how things were going to we didn't know how things are going to work out I think there's still some uncertainty as to how things are going to work out mm. but you're absolutely right Marion the candidates work incredibly hard and there is so much pressure on the interview that to be able to continue running them online that we are all adapting to just this new digital world I think it, it is a really good thing that we've been able to do Mm. Um, but there are some learnings yeah yeah there there are and and like anything we'll all sort of you know we'll continue to learn and how and how to do things better and I I'm always mindful on video that as human beings we are highly advanced and we can tell when there's fear when there's overconfidence you know we're sort of quite tuned in on levels that actually we don't really understand when it comes to our senses that give us a sense of connection with someone else who's in a room and that and that is really lost and you know even now as we record this podcast Ian I've no idea if you're terrified (laughs) of of what you might be asked next (laughs) (laughs) Or, uh, or not let me ask you about what it means to be an assessor and to get onto a panel because I know it's something that you know, RICS has sort of periodically called out for people to do that. I know in the past there have been challenges with, you know, getting on a list, finding pathways and things like that 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 are suitable. But can you talk through for anybody who's interested in getting involved, what then happens and and, and how how are they trained? Okay, so how are they trained? Well, it's actually a nice question that flows from the other one because we've had to look at how we deliver our training to our assessors because we can't do that in person anymore either. So one of the things that we we have started to deliver is a new modular blended online approach to, to assessor training. And it's a combination of live sessions where assessors can talk to each other and work through the training. It runs over a two-week period. So it's not two weeks full on, but there's bits and pieces you can go away and do in your own time. So it does run slightly differently. Assessors are audited during their first panel interview. So they get that feedback from other assessors that have been doing it for a while and from the auditor as well. And there is a refresher training session that every assessor goes to at least every three years because things are changing. If somebody wants to be an assessor, they can get in touch and we'll send the email addresses and details through so we can get those on the hub as well. But essentially, if somebody wants to volunteer to be an assessor and, we, and we'd love to have more assessors, then send us a note and we can get them on the next session. And what about counsellors and supervisors? Because that's something that I often see people asking for. And I'm not sure people know what the difference is or how to be one even. Okay. So every candidate needs to appoint a counsellor, but not every candidate has to have a supervisor. So one, one is required and one isn't. Many candidates have both because there's a benefit to that extra, that, 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 that additional support. Counsellors need to be chartered. So they can be members or fellows. And they're responsible for supporting the candidate through the process, but also signing off that they're ready to come forward for final assessment interview. So when someone signs up to do their APC, you know, they have to 
demonstrate all of this work, put their sort of case study and things together. And the counsellor is somebody who understands the process or can learn to understand the process and supports that candidate all the way through, right there through to submission. Yeah. And they don't need to know all the ins and outs of the process because there's lots of support that we can provide as well. And there's there's training sessions that we can provide for the counsellors to help them know what they need to do. But they're there to support the candidates. They're there to be that that, um, that arm on the shoulder to help support the candidates when with any challenges that they're facing to help them understand the process. And I think one of the things that candidate counsellors and supervisors can do, which might be quite hard, but it's to almost say to the candidate to act as that check and balance of, are you sure you're ready? Of course, candidates want to come forward for assessment as soon as they are. But actually, I think one of the worst things people can do is, is rush through the process. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I found in my work over the years, when people are in a, a mentoring role, which is, you know, what counsellors are to a to agree, albeit there's a, a framework, is that sometimes for a, a candidate or a student or a learner to, you know, sort of to go through their work and then and then they, they've got their mentor or their counsellor and they discover that the counsellor is wrong and they are right. And there's, um, well, I've been doing that for 50 years. <laughs> it doesn't matter what it says on there. Rules and regulations change. And that can put, puts candidates in a difficult position you know, in terms of they want to do the best, but they've they've got some, you know, they've got to navigate that with their 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 senior, I guess. But also, you know, so it's challenging to, for them to deal with that. But also, I think counsellors and supervisors and mentors are going to be really mindful that they all get the most out of the experience in their time if they think about reverse mentoring, and that they do not, like you said, they do not have to be the expert, but they also have to be open to. Crikey, I didn't know the regulation changed last year. It's not a piece of work I regularly do. And to be really open to that, because I see a lot of anxiety with with candidates and students as they go through. We're all learning, aren't we? Mm. Every day, we're all learning something new. And when I talk to counsellors and assessors, one of the, the, the most common reasons that I hear for so that in response to the question, why do you do it? Why do you assess? Why do you, why do you uh, access counsellor candidates? The assessors or the counsellors will say, for my own professional development, because it will help me with that process. One of the things I would also encourage, and not just students who've registered for APC, but also counsellors and those supporting people going through you know, the APC process, is to engage with Lionheart. So Lionheart run a number of um, APC workshops. I used to deliver some of them face-to-face in London a few years ago. They're now online. But they have lots of advice and support on how to manage your anxiety, how to look after your well-being. All of those things really do make a difference because if you think about what's the quickest, I don't know, two years, 18 months to sort of to get through from registering to interview – that's a lot of pressure to build up <laughs> as well as everything that, that's going on top, you know, in your life. And particularly, you know, I'm always in awe of people who study while they work, you know, sort of I've did it myself, sort of working evenings and weekends to get through, but that adds on a layer of pressure and tension. Yeah, it's a really hard thing to do and it shows an awful lot of commitment, but that can be really, you know, it's just an extra layer of 
of stress. So I'd really urge, you know, candidates and people to to explore that because it's free. It, it's not just hard on us when, when we're working and learning. It's hard on those around us that are supporting us as well. So I, I would absolutely support that, Marianne. Um, Lionheart is a fantastic resource. And if anybody's got any concerns or wants to talk to people and, and particularly APC candidates who want to share some of their experiences, Lionheart provides a lot of really good resources there. So we'll we'll provide some links in the show notes and I'd also urge anybody to listen back to a podcast interview I did with Natasha Collins who helped Lionheart, who's a surveyor and she helped Lionheart create some of these these courses as well because it, it really does make a difference. And for those who don't know, Lionheart is a benevolent fund uh, which supports surveyors and their families. And even if you've been a surveyor, you know, for a few number of years or you've retired, you know, as long as you're, you've registered with RICS and you're a, a paying member, then you get access to their range of, of services and, and support. So it's something that I really urge people to check out. So we've talked a bit about how you get how, the process, how you get started. Um, what kind of things do you think we need to do better? We've talked about it being quite complicated. There's a few different routes trying to navigate which is the best route for me, which is the best decision. That That's quite quite complex. I also see in the Surveyor Hub, we get students p- coming in saying, I don't know which course to choose. Do I go down a direct entry route? Do I try a degree? What's the best options? You know, and people want to sort of plan out and I guess have some reassurance and, and certainty, you know, and, and add that into the melting pot. And all of a sudden it becomes a really hard thing to become a surveyor. But what kind of things could we do better or what is RICS looking at at the moment? I think one of the things that we should look to do better and one of the things we are looking at is, is the assessment process as a whole. So not just the one hour interview, but actually what are the different component parts of what it takes to get qualified. So there, there's the assessment interview, there's there's education and training, there's on-the-job learning, and there's a sign-off of that experience. There's the ethics assessment goes towards that fit and proper person requirement that we have set out in the regulations. Um, so I think we need to look at that as a whole. And one of the reasons why I'm really keen to do that is something that you said earlier, Marion, which is about it's the culmination of two years of hard work for somebody, and there's there's a lot that rides on it. So is there a way that we can we can look to do that slightly differently? Could could the assessment work in a slightly different way? And I don't know the answers to that, but that's a conversation that I hope we'll be having with members later on this year. And we've learned a lot about that through the introduction of the apprenticeships process, of how education and learning and training can combine and come together in different ways that still leads to the associate and the chartered surveyor assessment. Tell me a bit about apprentices and the okay. apprenticeship route. Well, there's, there's two apprenticeship routes that we have. There's the surveying technician, which leads to associate, and there's the chartered surveyor degree apprenticeship, which leads to chartered surveyor. The chartered surveyor one doesn't cover all of the pathways that we have within the chartered surveying discipline. That there's, there's over 20 of them. Uh, it doesn't cover all of them, but it's set out in three different clusters. And essentially... It allows an apprentice to study part-time. So they're studying for an accredited degree whilst working. And there's a number of benefits to that. For the apprentice, they're not incurring the fees from studying on an undergraduate or postgraduate degree program, which will be attractive to many. For the employer, they don't necessarily have to pay all of the fees to train that individual. 
some of the funding will be provided by government. So if you're an employer that has a, a pay bill of over three million pounds a year, you'll be paying the apprenticeship levy. If your pay bill is less than that, you won't be and you can access some of that funding. I see. And is that pathway then open to residential surveyors? Yeah, okay. yeah. I, I'll add the links through. Yeah, we'll have those links well in there. That'd be that'd be super. And I think um, that's one of the ways where firms could really look to take on trainees as well. Yeah, and I was going to ask because you know I remember from the workshops that I did for Lionheart and the you know when I was on the APC panel, there's a lot of corporate people and. In the nicest way, a lot of them look the same. <laughs> you know, at the at the end of the day, when you've done a lot of these these interviews, you know, it's like they're almost sort of wearing the same suits and have the same look of fear on their face. But they all come from a, a corporate background. And you know, what what more can SMEs do? I guess to to support candidates through, you know, take on candidates, support them through, because I think that gives um you know a good variety. I, I don't think there's there's any clear numbers, you know, as we speak today, but then there's about 60, 70% of RICS members are SMEs, you know, and so there's a lot that they can do to nurture and bring new talent through. I guess the barrier is they, they might see it as a, as a cost until they fee earn, but is there any additional support there or what, what more can they do? I think I might phrase the answer to the question slightly differently, actually, Marion. I think it's not necessarily as much about what the firms can do. I think it's something about what we can do to raise awareness of all the support that's available for firms. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so in addition to all of the website guidance that we've got, we actually run weekly assessment surgeries on Friday mornings for candidates. Oh, right. Okay. Exactly. There, there, there's probably a lot that we do that isn't known or isn't well publicised for, and some of the firms probably won't know about it. We've got an online candidate support network through the Insight community pages. Um, there's the mentoring scheme, there's matrix. These are all mechanisms that can support candidates through that process. And if a firm takes on an apprentice, then there's additional support that's provided through that process as well. So for example, if if, if it's a chartered surveyor degree apprentice, the university will be providing support as part of the apprenticeship package to the candidates. You mentioned that you've done, not you personally, but RICS has now done 5,000 online interviews. What's the pass rate for APC interviews? Oh, I can give you a, a, a non-answer answer to this one. Okay, so... Um, well, everybody's a winner. Everyone's a winner. <laughs> um, I, th- I think the first thing to say about pass rates is that there are so many different ways of looking at the pass rates. There's a global average, there's a pass rate for pathways, a pass rate for assessments type. So... Breaking that down to one number, I think, loses some of the, the nuance and the differences between those assessment types. But that, having said all of that, the global average pass rate for Charles is about 70%. Okay. Okay. For ASOC, it's about 68%. So not a lot in it, really, um, Yeah. If, if we're looking at the numbers. But then if we break that down and look at the pass rates for APC, so far this year, we're, we're about 2% off last year's total. And then, of course, each pathway has a different pass rate as well because the breadth and depth of competencies that are assessed in those pathways reflect the different roles. In in some ways, pathways represent many professions in their own right within that chartered surveying umbrella. So are some pathways more difficult than others, would you say? I wouldn't say that they're more difficult than others. I, I would say that they're assessing for different skills and competence. 
if, if we think about and, and if anyone wanted to that you, you could have a look at the pathway guides and see that the way in which the competencies are put together is quite different for a residential surveyor than it would be for and, a quant- and i guess it i guess it's been able to get the range of experience you know the way that some co- companies operate some sectors operate you know within a period of time hmm. and in the last year that's been harder for some professionals than it has for others yeah 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 uh, yeah absolutely absolutely and and just finally then to uh, to wrap up what about diversity the the sort of BAME background gender I mean what does that look like and what more can be done what more can be done well we can always do more Absolutely. I, th- I think one of the first things I will say on this point is one of the things that we need to do better is to understand our members. So we know that of the 40% of professionals that provided data, only 2% of those professionals are, are black, are black professionals. So only, only 2%? Only of the 40% of, the 40, of wow. data, black professionals represent just 2% of members. So it's understanding, has everybody contributed or is that just reflected in the the numbers? Mm. Yeah, so we know we need to look at the way in which we ask those questions um, and and not just around ethnicity, but also around gender. Mm. Um, It's not just about male or female. There are other ways in which we can ask that question to understand members better. I'm bearing bearing in mind globally, you can't ask the same questions in some parts of the world. Once we start to look outside of the UK, the way in which we ask the questions does need to be very different and we need to be very mindful of different cultures. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, look, Ian, it's been really good to talk to you today. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. So thanks for listening to today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I really do love hearing your feedback. So please feel free to drop me a message. You can email me at marion.ellis at blueboxpartners.com or you can find me on social media at Marion Surveyor.